Well, welcome again to another podcast. This is interesting because this is the second time we've tried this. Just shows what a startup we are. We started this, recorded it, put it out into the ether, and we had to pull it again because the quality was poor. So this time with Plumis, we have the two founders. We have William McCants and Yusuf Mohammed. So first of all, let's give a little bit of background about both of you, and then we'll move on to the company. So William? So I'm a mechanical engineer, born and raised in Brazil, but my family's from Bolton with curiously a history in the sprinkler industry. I left that industry while I was working as an intern to work at Ford at product development, engine development, and then I decided to do an MBA to leave the automotive industry. Once the first Tesla was launched, I thought I'm going to lose my job. It's a matter of time. So I went to do an MBA. I wanted to go into the entrepreneurship world, and I saw that the Imperial was a really good place to do that. In fact, because I tried to do the industrial design course, but that was twice the price of the MBA at the time. And so I thought the MBA, believe it or not, would be a cheaper solution to get to the same place. Yeah. Excellent. And Yusuf, of course, you went to Imperial as well. Can you give us some of your background? Yes. Yeah, so I did a joint course at Imperial and the Royal College of Arts. I'm a graduate engineer by trade. I was at Nottingham University. I was there for four years. I was a little bit disillusioned with engineering as a whole. And I've always been a creative person and I really wanted an opportunity to express that. And so industrial design engineering felt like a, a perfect fit. And that really kind of led me on the direction, on the path of going down entrepreneurship because it gave me a way of ensuring that the ideas didn't stay in my portfolio but could be actually out there making a difference. Good. And it was in fact you and your uh, sleeping partner, Paul, who came up with some ideas. So can you talk through those? Sure. So every year you have to do a solo project and a group project at the RCA. And for our group project, we said that we'd like to make a difference in an emergency situation. So we did a load of things. We went to go and speak to paramedics, firefighters, all sorts of different people who work in emergency services. And it was the conversations and the discussions with the firefighters that really resonated. And one of them highlighted that fire extinguishers were deemed as sort of creating a risk for people escaping towers because they were trying to fight the fire as opposed to escaping. So we thought, wow, this is an interesting insight. And it just so happens that there was the very first International Water Mist Association conference taking place at the BRE. So we went across to the event. Everyone there was, you know, much, much older than us. They went into unbelievable detail into the you know droplet size and where the industry was going but we thought that there were the beginnings there of something that had real potential if we could just find a way of bringing this technology into the home and then so you and Paul put something together and you entered a competition I believe that's right so there was an ideas challenge which was a university-wide competition where anyone could enter an idea it would just be a one-pager with a short brief and you would win a thousand pounds. So all of the industrial design engineer graduates or the people going through the course would put in numerous ideas, hoping that they could win some money so they could, you know, a bit more, whether it's going on holiday, buying trainers, whatever. Um, So I entered, I think, four ideas. Um, Paul entered another four or so, and we managed to win quite a few different prizes, one of which was for Automist, the actual product that you know, we took to market later on. And it was off the back of this competition win that we were encouraged to enter the follow-on competition, which was a business plan competition. And that's, in fact, how I ended up meeting William. Yeah, so let's go back to William. So how did you first meet? Was it through this competition or? 
It was on the same competition where it was Imperial and Royal College of Art together. So we doing the MBAs, the MBA students also pitched ideas into this competition. And it was curious because we were seriously confident about winning the prizes and no MBA at all won any prize. Yusuf and Paul between them won half of the prizes available. And I made the mistake on that event of taking my wife with me. Maybe not a mistake after all, but when she saw who took all the prizes, she pointed to Yusuf and Paul said, you should get together with those guys and give up your own ideas because those guys clearly have better ideas than you do. And the whole idea is that we would then pitching ourselves as the MBAs to help them write the business plan for the next competition, which instead of £1,000 prizes, there were 20000 and 15000 respectively for first and second. And so we were joining forces on the creative and on the, let's say, MBA jargon. And Yusuf, did you have a choice of anybody else? Was anybody else courting you at this point? Yeah, there were quite a few different uh, <laughs> MBAs who uh, wanted to sort of jump in onto the competition. But I think William and Alan, who's another okay, shareholder in the, yeah. in the business, both of them, they seemed quite grounded. Also, William had background in the industry and... Yeah, I mean, I think at the time, to be honest, we were just keen to enter the next stage of the competition and everyone was pairing up with someone. So we thought, you know what, let's give it a go. And so that led you to winning £25,000. But then that led you also to getting a convertible loan, didn't it? But let's talk about the journey for funding here. So at that point, then you had had £80,000 as a convertible loan from the RCA. What happens next? The whole point of the business incubator was to take us from having an idea to actually having a value proposition into which an investor could invest. So the whole year was spent developing a business plan, trying to validate whether or not the market existed and shaping ourselves in such a way that somebody could say, you know what, there's potential there, at which point we would be valued and we would convert the loan. Okay. And then you went out for funding. Yes, we looked at a few places where you'd expect to have funding, like the Cambridge Angels, the London Business Angel Group as well. At the time, the incubator was called Design London. It's now the RCA Innovation Incubator. And at the time, they were just being set up, so they didn't have the connections to investors that they now do. Yeah, they're very well set up now. They have like a real good infrastructure. At that time, we were learning with them, and so we didn't have that many contacts or people to reach to, but the main ones were the LBA, the London Business Angel Group, and the Cambridge Angels, yeah. And you pitched to both those, and how did that go? It didn't go particularly well. I think we, I mean, it's not like we were inundated with offers. I think we were very, very early when we were looking for investment. We really didn't have a strong idea of the market, where our product would fit. And although there were customers who promised, you know, that if we launched this product, they would go ahead and buy out certain amounts of stock, it, it wasn't a necessity for them to buy the product. It was a luxury item almost. It wasn't a must-have, exactly. Yeah. So the unmet market need wasn't really there at that point. Exactly. Yeah, I'll, I'll say that the real only interest that we had was from you, like serious interest was from you and Paul Anson at the time leading the Cambridge Angels group. The only ones that took it ahead to want to know more, visit us and start doing some due diligence. So even in hindsight, now we look at it and think, how is it that you, at the stage that we were, with the amount of validation that we had, how did you go ahead into that? Because 
looking at that time, I wouldn't invest on myself then. Yeah. But as you know, and, and I've said many times before, it's the people that matter. We invest in people who can execute on something, mm. not necessarily the thing they presented to us at that time. And you had to do that. There's several pivots on this journey, aren't there? Yeah, there, yes, there were. So raised money, I think it was about £80,000. What next? Well, the next stage was we were trying to sell products. You know, we were burning through cash very, very quickly. And we had to identify or try and convince some of the people who had showed initial interest to go ahead and uh, buy products. And that was proving very, very difficult. We initially went to, was it the Ideal Home Show? We had a stand there. We thought that we could convince a few homeowners to buy this, you know, for a small amount of money, they could install their very own fire sprinkler alternative in their homes. And it just really didn't work. People weren't interested. Yeah, I think we had the two main niches on our business plan. We were attempting to validate these two niches, which were the housing associations, which would mean large volumes, but lower purchase cycles. And then the consumer product side of things, because we got very excited with all the media that came out once we launched the product. Of course, at the back of the James Dyson Award that we won in 2009. So we saw it on every website. There was lots of people saying, I'm interested, I'm interested. But none of these were converting to sales at all. And the other niche, which was the housing association, showed lots of interest, but absolutely no priority in terms of their budgetary uh, list of priorities for them to spend the little money they had on. It was first making sure that the tenants had decent heating before they could even think of fire safety. So Yusuf, can you describe the product in a short? Sure. So our very first product was a series of spray nozzles, water mist nozzles that fit underneath a kitchen tap. And basically what that allows you to do is to retrofit a sprinkler system to protect a room or a, a volume very, very easily. I think the thing that we didn't understand when we first started is the drivers for the fire safety industry. And, you know, it's regulation, plain and simple. In general, it's a grudge purchase, so you can tick a box. And it's really when we only found a niche to fit in where we could enable someone to tick a box that we ain't got any traction. Yeah, let's talk about that in a minute. But first of all, you ran out of cash quite soon, didn't you? That cash, the cash we put in was too little. You asked for too little, we gave you too little. What happens when you ran out of cash? Well, I think the first point is that we asked for too little because I'm not sure we would convince anybody to take more for a start. So we got the amount that we were able to get and tried to do the best with what we had. So it, you could argue that even today we're highly bootstrapped into trying to get to where we want to. But where we've learned that Probably that was the only way forward, especially in the industry that we are. So slow moving, you don't have quick adoption of new products. The other day we were having a meeting with a, an established manufacturer of alarms and their business development manager was telling us that one of their products has been launched 10 years ago and uh, customers was, were telling him that this is a new product. This is a new <laughs> product barely in the market and, and he got back to them and said, this product is 10 years in the market and you're telling me it's a new product. We have our latest launch, launch product is a year old and we're already iterating to its next version of it. And this is how the difference of a startup speed with the, what the industry is. So we have had to adapt ourselves to this much slower and much higher barrier to entries of having to fire test to have third-party scrutiny into everything you do with your product, yeah. And so for a few months you didn't pay yourselves and then we put some more money in and then yes. what happened then? 
So for many months, we didn't pay ourselves. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, We did all sorts of cost containment strategies of our own so that we could survive like that. Yeah, Even I moved to a place where I would be fully subsidized. Yusuf moved to his parents' house where he would be fully subsidized. So uh, we had to do some very bizarre strategies to be able to keep the business and keep investing our time in the business because what, it's what it needed. Yeah. And then you went back and we put some more money in because you got a slightly better story. But that ran out as well, didn't it? Yes. Yeah, so where we saw a new, and I guess that was our real first pivot that we did, was when we had no or very little sales from the consumer side or from the housing association side. And we had the consumer knocking on our door saying, I'm refurbishing my home. I have building control telling me that I have to put a sprinkler. And I'm wondering whether I can put your tap spray system in my kitchen and in my living room. And we're like, how on earth are we going to put, like, we'll have to put a sink in the middle of his living room. <laughs> we didn't even know what building control was. In fact, that's where it's useful to explain where my experience from the fire industry was proved to be completely useless. Because the experience that I had was from a commercial, industrial side of things, where it's all in insurance driven. It's all reducing premiums because you're reducing the risk of a claim for your insurer. And we've learned that on the residential side, it's completely different. It's all building codes, building regulations driven. And it means that it's the, the drivers are completely different. The solution is completely different. So all the experience I had was completely useless. I didn't know what building control was. But we went to the local building control office and just learned what exactly they did and how our product could fit. And they said, yes, indeed, your product could be used for this very niche specific loft conversion application, which is written into the building regulations in the UK, into the guidance of the building regulations into the UK. And that's really what the business started, like really growing organically from. Was from that this one. this what, six years ago now, I think, isn't it? 2011, yeah, probably that's was right. the first install. So that's then product, the route to market is through installers, not directly to consumer. So we've got a business now that's starting to grow, starting to get some market pull, got a patent being granted, some defensibility. What next? How did you scale the business? So, I mean, once we had identified this niche that we would be able to help people get their home signed off and enable them to have sort of more open plan, more desirable layouts. We just tried to educate the market as much as possible that we were here, we were an easy solution, and we could help people tick these things off. So we did a lot of CPD presentations, education to industry, to approvers, try to get more architects to specify us and more installers to kind of spread our story as well. And you're working from interesting locations, both in London and elsewhere. So tell us about London, Yusuf, and then elsewhere, William. Okay, so our very first real established office was in the HMS President, which was a World War II Corvette, which was located quite near Blackfriars in the River Thames. I remember with the first day we moved in there, it took a while to get used to the fact that it was sort of uh, undulating as the Thames hopper went up and down. So once we were over the seasickness, it was a really, but it was really cheap. great space. It was, really cheap. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was affordable. There was a um, semi-workshop space sort of below sea level where we could put together some of our more basic parts, assemble some units, and we could ship our equipment out of there. So quite flexible, but it worked really well. And William, you moved slightly further away from that. Yes, at the same time, my wife was pregnant and decided that the best place to have a child was in Brazil 
which having just received angel investment sounded like the worst idea ever. <laughs> but I guess you, I, I couldn't argue at that point, given that I wasn't the real breadwinner at that point. So I was working from Brazil. The time zone differences between three and four hours were helpful because I could do the first feed of the morning at 4 to 5 a.m. And then I could start working in the UK time zone and go to bed at like 8 p.m. every day. So that ended up working curiously pretty well, having at that point already Skype numbers and this sort of thing already working very well, which meant that I could call building controls architects and they would never know that I was in fact calling from Brazil. Uh, but you came back after you had three children in rapid succession. Well done. Exactly, yeah. They're very <laughs> close. And people ask me why. And I say, well, it's because our investor wanted us back. <laughs> and we did. And we love you for coming back. <laughs> so you came back. But at this point, you're still only about three or four people. I remember having a conversation about growing the business, not retaining capital, but growing it. The conversation was more or less you calling us cash hoarders. Yeah. <laughs> was the, was it? Okay. Yeah. yeah. But I think that was definitely in part from our history and our the story which we'd had we, for so long, we'd bootstrapped for so long. We just, you know, we don't want to spend any money here. Let's save money for stock. That actual moment where we were able to say, you know, well, let's invest, let's grow the team. It was, I don't know, it was like a... You resisted it. I remember you resisting it. Yeah. Yeah, we did. We did resist because we weren't sure even on what to spend. Yeah. But it was probably a good time to get us to change and grow because at that time was when we had the Innovate UK grant to invest into R&D, the first one, yeah. So it allows us to invest into R&D much more than we thought that we would, in fact, to be able to get the latest product launched. So this is building the team up over that time while doing sales and also being profitable as well. Yeah. Okay, so move forward a bit. So we've moved down to Clapham, got product in the market, but something has to happen, needs to scale faster. Talk about America. So, I mean, I recently just came back from InsureTech Connect, which is a big conference with, you know, most of the major insurers in the US present there. And they're all looking for new ways to make, ensure that insurance remains relevant and kind of is set for this modern world with smart homes and IoT and trying to use technology to make sure they understand risks better and can sort of pass on more value to their customers. And this seems like a great opportunity for us because our solution can very well be driven by that in the US. But before that, we've set up a US entity some years ago now, which has been partially successful. Yeah, well, I'd say that what started happening is that we quickly learned that for a life safety product like what we ended up being, we were expecting to be originally just like an add-on, an elective, more of a consumer product. We ended up being a product which is used for life safety to meet building regulations, which means that it's highly regulated in terms of the certification or the approvals you have to have to sell your product, which is completely at odds with innovation. The standards are driven by historical product development, which means that you can't easily innovate and still meet a standard because it's always innovation will invariably be outside of the scope of a standard. So it means you can't have it meet a standard or certify against a standard. So our first interest in going to the US was having a version of our product that would perform just like a sprinkler and therefore allow us to have a much wider product appeal or market opportunity simply because it would compete directly with a sprinkler by 
meeting the same requirements that a sprinkler does. So that was our first interest of going to the US is having a UL listed system and being offered as a, an equivalent to a sprinkler. We started the office there as the objective to have pilot installs and learn from the field so that we could evolve the product and the documentation to make sure that by the time we were UL listed, we were having a product that was certified to what really what the market wanted. There's, you're not allowed really to make a mistake on the certification and getting it a mismatch with the market because it's so expensive, you, you don't have another shot. Yeah. And the capital requirement for that was high, wasn't it? So you had another round and also got a good size in about UK grant as well. That was so that we could optimize the product for the American market. So our initial system was sort of one pump to one head, which meant that you could sort of cover a room that was about eight by four meters with one set of kit. But with our new product, you know, you can have multiple heads. So whether it is the bottom floor of a apartment block or a large house, you can still cover it and it can still be cost effective. Compared to sprinklers. That's right. So the patents, let's talk about defensibility. It's very important. I mean, it's a business which, in order to grow and sell it, needs some defensibility in the product. You applied for the patent first, even before you'd formed the company on this, was it? Or? Yeah, it was almost a prerequisite to being able to go into the business incubator. I even remember some of our initial conversations with you where you were asking exactly where we were with things and how solid our IP position was. So, you know, we initially started with our tap-mounted sprinkler. We very quickly moved on to thinking about a wall-mounted version. And then our latest product, our smart scan system, which, you know, this is the, the platform which we're going to hopefully build the American market. We've again looked to kind of bolster our um, IP position. But that's also varied. Sometimes the patents have not been that relevant, have they? Yeah, we've tried a number of different things and sometimes either it wasn't protectable. Um, in other cases, we've let it slip because it's just been unnecessary for where we've ended up. So can we talk about the role of the investor investor, you know, who came onto the board, the positives and the negatives, please? I think as first-time entrepreneurs, there's the clear benefit of having somebody with uh, not only the business, but some investment experience or knowing how the, knowing, I'll say better, how the contract between a entrepreneur and the investor should be, which is we're signing, I wouldn't say it's like a devil's selling the, your soul to the devil, but you're agreeing at that point of investment that your objective is to exit and that like hopefully we'll be fired because the product and the company is bigger than us and we've exited. So it's got a life of its own and we don't need, the, we're not necessary anymore, but we've got our contribution as a, as a result. But so that was the first clear benefit because this was the first time for both of us, like for all of the founders and shareholders involved in the company. So the first big guidance is on this journey of how do you validate your market and get the company growing and sustainable before we can even grow to a scale it really yeah, to validate what the market is first yeah so how did that help what's the positive and negative of having somebody like me on the board so i think definite positive i mean you had links to manufacturing which was a big help in terms of you know setting up for the very first time a production line for something completely new and i also think it was beneficial that you invest in companies which have a similar scope or are trying to do similar things so in talking to some of the other founders you can learn from their experience but i think on so sort of counter that 
it does mean that there is a certain mindset in and around kind of what you do and how you do it. And I think later on in the chain, when we had some exposure to American companies, it was quite shocking to see the contrast between, you know, UK business angel and a American VC. Not that one way is right or wrong, but that exposure has definitely kind of changed my outlook for when it comes to the, the relationship between an investor and an entrepreneur. There's like a natural conflict that you'd expect because it's the potential next step of investment mm. and it's in a different country where they're, they're more aggressive but also with a higher failure rate and having this difference of mentality, just the trying to absorb which of the two places should we be yeah, in terms of the, is it the UK angel investor or the USVC? Yeah, so I agree that that was a, a curious learning that we've gone through. I think the one positive thing that we had is just having the investor, how do you say, doing the scrutiny work of everything that we were doing, having our board meetings that at the start we thought this is so frequent that we have our board meetings. Why does it have to be that frequent? But just the fact that on every board meeting we're stopping and thinking of what we're doing and taking a lot of heat of saying, is it what we're doing right? Is, are you spending your money properly? This is where I think it's not something they're used to having in like a big business. Yeah, You're just doing what the high inertia of a large company is doing. You're not changing things as quick. And that's where I think that the scrutiny of an investor being with you, making sure of where you're spending your money every two months, as we always had on our board meetings, was, has been very, very useful. Yeah. I remember you saying at one point that you felt that if you raised more money, the company might not have been so successful. Can you explain that? I think we were new. We even consider still, after nine years, we're new to the industry because this is such a, a long-term product cycle industry. We were even more naive than we are today at that point. We knew nothing about the industry. So now we can clearly see that if we had raised more money, we could have insisted on a path which only now, like seven years later, is showing any interest and serious uh, significance. We could have drained all our money trying to get that version of our business plan, our original top-down, easy-to-sell version. I say easy-to-sell to investors and not easy-to-sell the product itself, right? Mm. But a, a more beautiful version of reality that we had on our original business plan, which was to the housing associations, is... We could have spent all our money on that, trying to still get business from that, and we could have gone bankrupt much yes. much faster than what we did by originally being very bootstrapped and being able to pivot to change our focus much quicker by just yes. being like the three of us and with much less money and much less sunk cost, let's say. Yeah? So in terms of scaling in seven or eight years, the company turns over about £2 million, is profitable, and has installed in how many homes now? How many thousand homes? About 5,000. 5,000 homes. So this yeah. is accessible, solid business that's scaled very slowly, hopefully on some sort of strong upturn getting into the States. Yeah, I remember a couple of lectures in the Royal College of Art when my tutors were saying things that, you know, the only problem with innovation, the more innovative that the product is, the more explanation and marketing that you have to do in order for people to understand your value proposition and then accept it and buy into it and I think you know if we would have raised a lot more money and you know we've got more staff then that process perhaps we would have you know fallen off a cliff long before the market had kind of caught up with what we 
presenting them. So, yeah, I think it's worked out, fortunately, quite well. And there was another thing that you mentioned about that was somewhat negative about the conflict that the investor director and the rest of the board can happen. I think that was evident when we had our last investment because at the time we had used an investor where you were already a shareholder and where our interest as when we're trying to get a new investment is to get as high as a valuation of the company as possible but raising as much money as possible too. So you representing then the investment group, Martlet at the time, not seeing us having the valuation being justified to be as high. So having the conflict of interest of saying, is this a personal interest or is this in the interest of the company? Yeah, or as an investor, are you representing the interest of the company? Are you representing the interest of the investor? Yeah, and obviously there's going to be conflict there because we're trying to get the highest valuation, you're trying to get the lowest valuation at that point, yeah. So it's hard to negotiate because we know we both want the best for the company, but there's a clear conflict at that point, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we'll definitely cover that in the book. Joey, you see? I think it feeds on to a point that I think is apparent throughout the whole journey is what's normal. And it's, you know, whether it's valuation, the company structure, how many people are meant to be on the board, it's always really hard to try and gauge in a space where every business is unique and you can do your own personal twist on things where you should sit. So it's always been tricky trying to find a place where you're comfortable. Even when we were discussing the valuation and the conflict of interest, the thing that we agreed on is that you can only state what the valuation is at the moment there has been an investment, right? When the price has been set. Because out of that point, it's just like a guessing, whether it's using multiples or just using what is the vision of the company. It's just like a word, a battle, and you can only validate it once you've had an investor putting money at that valuation. That's where you can really determine that that's been the price. It could have been later on, you can find that it's been overvalued round if you have to go through a down round, which we fortunately hadn't done, haven't gone through that. But that's the only point where you can price it, yeah? Any other event is this, you can't price a company. Well, you can do with a convertible loan, but that's probably what wasn't appropriate at that point. Yeah. So, both of you, obviously you've learnt a lot in the last seven or eight years, and I've learnt a lot from you. Have you any tips for entrepreneurs, bearing in mind it's not just angels or entrepreneurs listening to this podcast? Yusuf? So, I think, first and foremost, for me, it's about finding a network of people who are going through the same struggle. Because not only is entrepreneurship a very lonely journey, there's so many different ways that you can kind of go about it and approach it, and leveraging other people who are experiencing some of the things that you are has definitely helped along the way. Yeah, I think that you should have like a, a open mind being ready to change things very quickly because what we saw clearly from our journey is that it's got nothing to do with what we originally planned. In fact, nothing that we originally planned is in the current company, not even the product, not even the people. But the founders are. Well, yeah, not all the people that started it. Yes. Yeah? So yeah. The, the team is not the same. The product is not the same. The time that it took originally when we signed our investment agreement it said that at five years, you'd be uh, with up to five years, you're a bad lever if you leave before that. And we were making jokes like, oh, we're going to exit way before that. We're on the ninth year. And now I don't put the time limit to when is it that we're going to exit because now we learned that 10 years is like a new product still in the market. So if you're really innovating, you will find out that all that with experience only that what you had 
originally planned your product and your company to be will change very rapidly and you just have to be ready to change very rapidly. Exactly, which what makes a good founder, in fact, the ability to change, to be agile, to pivot. Anyway, both of you, thank you very much indeed. I've really enjoyed talking to you, Yusuf and William, and let's continue our journey together. Thanks for listening to another Investor Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investorinvestor.com, or via a number of online podcast platforms. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content.